Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Welcome to Medicine on Call, where it's all about living the solutions. Today I have an important guest on, Mr. Larry Horst. He's a conservative activist, he's an author, and he is somebody who understands, who has his finger really on the pulse of what's going on in the inner city, amongst the, I guess we can talk about race relations, you name it, he's actually someone who can speak with knowledge because he's not just sitting behind a, a computer screen pontificating, but he's actually out there and knows people and has seen how our country is working. And one of the things that I, I read an article that he wrote about the New York City minimum wage, and I think that's a really hot topic right now. We've seen a movement towards social democratic movement and this mindset that wealth needs to be spread around. And one of the ways that people, have, at least Congress people, have talked about is ma- raising the minimum wage. And it sounds good on paper, but his article really opened my eyes about, you know, unintended consequences and what we can really expect. So, Mr. Horst, I wanted to, one, thank you so much for coming on and, and answering the call when I got in touch with you about your article, because I think people need to really understand what's going on and not really just lead with the emotions, but be intellectually and, and critically thinkers, critical thinkers about this. So thank you so much. Well, my, my pleasure. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I, I gave a synopsis, but you have a really interesting history. How did you get? How did you start this process? Well, I, you know, I started in a, what we call a lower middle class family in Chicago. Uh, it was a kind of a gritty neighborhood, and uh, I didn't have a lot of influential friends or anything. But you know, I, I, I had a good family who taught me a lot about uh, being honest and looking at things realistically and not playing games, if you will. So I sort of grew up with that. Uh, you know, how how do things really work? How how is you know? Uh, because in politics, we create narratives, we create fictional imagery that we want people to embrace, and then we don't look at what really happens and how it really happens. And so, uh, and I got I got involved in that. You know, I went off to college, and I was the first in my family ever to graduate from college. I got interested in politics, and, and uh, ironically, my college roommate was president of the Young Democrats when I was president of the Young Republicans, hmm. and we were lifelong friends. And so, uh, you know, I learned a lot about things, and I, I grew up in an all-white neighborhood, but I, you know, started questioning some of the talk about the prejudices and everything and I write about it in my book some some of the breakthroughs in my own thinking about uh, race relations and uh, by the time I got to college I, for the first time in my life I actually hung around with someone who was black and uh, although I must say when I was in high school we had an exchange program and one, one of my breakthroughs was our all-white high school students, when we went over to an all-black school, and a lot of those students came over and visited our school, and I sat next to this black girl who I just totally got enamored with. I just absolutely was one of those, I saw her, I like her. <laughs> you know, it's one of those. 
<laughs> Thunderbolt. And, you know, it struck me. I thought, well, that's not supposed to happen the way, you know, in the, in the old neighborhood. There's supposed to be a barrier. You're not supposed to have that kind of feeling for somebody. <laughs> and so I thought, something's got to be wrong here. <laughs> I, either, either what the, the, the lessons in the white culture were wrong or something was wrong with me. I don't know what the, the thing. So, you know, that carried on, and uh, I got active in the inner city. I was quite devoted to that. And uh, I actually wound up uh, raising a black daughter because we hired her as a high school girl to take care of my two little kids. And turned out that she had a very abusive situation at home, and we had to rescue her from the house. And so uh, she wanted to quit school. When she was in high school, she was doing really well. But she wanted to get a job, quit school, because she couldn't live at home anymore. And we just sort of kept her. <laughs> so she became our daughter, and so for 45 years, uh, she's been part of the family. And then, uh, I, you know, it was uh, a lot of involvement uh, in the inner city that led me to actually write this book I'm writing about uh, race relations, because I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding uh, in terms of what America's like and, you know, in terms of race and everything. So I did the homework. I did the uh, research and brought it all away. The thing that really struck me was actually how little is understood about modern-day racism. We sort of dropped the idea uh, after Martin Luther King. Nobody was talking about uh, de, de facto racism in the big cities. Mm -hmm. You know, he came to Chicago because it was a very racist city run by an racist administration. Well, it still is, but nobody talks about it anymore, and they pretend it doesn't exist anymore. But when you look at all of our cities, New York, Los Angeles, uh, Miami, you name it, in Chicago for sure, um, things aren't much different than 50 years ago. Uh, the cities are still segregated. The quality of education in the black communities, minority communities, is inferior. Uh, there's a lack of jobs. It's a little better today, they say, but, you know, still it's high unemployment. Uh, you have a lot of deprivations of, you know, health care. Uh, you, you don't get the kind of city services the white neighborhoods get. You don't get your streets repaired. You don't uh, – the building uh, departments, uh, they look the other way at all these uh, – conversions into tenements and these dangerous housing. I inspected a lot of housing, and it was it was just phenomenal to me that I, and in my neighborhood, if, if uh, we wanted to divide a two-flat into uh, six units, uh, we wouldn't be allowed to do it. Uh, the, the building inspectors would say, come there and say, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. And yet I would see, you know, buildings with exposed wire, you know, plumbing, uh, vermin, all kinds of things uh, that we're not being attended to in the inner city, and that's racism. Uh, you know, when, when your housing stock is deteriorating, when your schools are, when you're not getting educated. And I also came to believe that it's not accidental that the, the confining of a, a large black population into a substandard place um, was uh, designed uh, by the city administrations because that's how they maintain power. And I, I refuse to believe that anyone with a half a brain could spend 30, 40, 50, 60 years not solving that problem. You know, why, why does the inner city look today the way it does? And so, uh, you know, when they talk about Republicans and Democrats who's racist, if you watch the media, the Republicans are racist. 
But if you look at the communities, where do all the riots take place? Where does the frustration boil over into violence? Where does it, it happens in cities that have been controlled by the Democrats for eons, for years, generations, and yet it doesn't change. And I, you know, I give a lot of speeches at churches and everything, and having done it for almost 50 years, I said the only thing that has changed is the neighborhood is much more dangerous than it used to be. It wasn't as deadly on the streets, uh, even from drugs or from you know gun violence or murders and things like that. That has gotten a lot worse than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. But other than that, uh, I, you know, I was an advisor to the Board of Education in Detroit and Chicago uh, during a couple of reform periods, and uh, it's disgraceful. I, I consider... Uh, not educating young people is one of the most immoral things you can possibly do because you, you really ruin their lives. You prevent them from being anything. You prevent them from succeeding. You prevent them from going to college, from getting career-level jobs. You prevent them from being con- contributors to society, from being doctors, from being scientists, being inventors, being astronauts. I mean, all of those people in the inner city who have been trapped there generationally, who have not been educated, who have suffered through a lot of the violence, what could have all of those people have been and done with their lives if they at least got an education and they could move on? So I I consider, and I know that's no accident. You cannot, you know, I mean... People, the, the racism in the cities, the, the machine, the Chicago political machine, they say, well, it's the parents in the black neighborhood. They don't know how to raise their kids. Uh, well, they're not as smart as white kids, and they're not as a, So the Democrats, who are supposed to be the friends of the black people, actually insult black people. And so I said, well, well this is crazy, because I worked with Marva Collins. They made a movie about her, uh, West Side Prep. Now, she took a school, and she took kids from the inner city, and she brought them out going to college, career level. Uh, she ran a great school. So uh, Father Clemens at Holy Angels in Chicago, he did the same thing. He took kids from the inner city and into that school, that's a Catholic school, and he, he brought them, he gave them a good education, which proves that you can take kids from the inner city and give them a good education and get a good result. Well, you know, so why can't the public school do that? Well, let me stop you. I think one of the problems is the expectations. If you expect and you in you let the child know that you expect more from them, that you're not willing to accept just mediocrity and make them come up to a standard, I think most people will be surprised that children want to be be the best that they can be. But if you have this mindset of oh, you can't, or you're, you're somehow, you need a leg up, or you are somehow unable to do the work, you get what you, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, basically. I mean, we're talking, well, actually, well, we have to take a break, so hold that thought, because I really want to talk about the fact that what makes us alike. I think, I don't care if you're black, green, or purple, the education system at this point seems to be failing anybody who's not doing it either homeschooling or from a private standpoint. So on that note, let's take a small break. You're listening to Medicine on Call.
From treatment of sinusitis with balloon dilation to minimally invasive office procedures to correct snoring, Peachtree ENT Center offers state-of-the-art care. We also specialize in price transparency. You'll know the cost of our ENT services before they're rendered, whether you have a high deductible plan or no insurance at all. Make an appointment today to find out why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. If you've tried taking over-the-counter medications but still have problems with nasal congestion, recurrent sinus infections, sinus headaches, or a dry mouth when you wake up in the morning, why not fix the problem? From natural integrative treatment to minimally invasive surgery, Peachtree ENT Center will work with you to find the solution that works best for you. Call 404-591-9100 today to make an appointment or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Mr. Larry Horst. He's a, a public policy expert, I would say, an author, somebody who understands human nature and the bigger picture. We've been led around, Mr. Horst, a lot of the last eight years, if not longer, by our emotions. And I think when people do that, they turn off their reason and they're able to be manipulated beyond belief. I personally think we're moving backwards. I think we've made some progress. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if we didn't, if we hadn't moved past what was going on in the 50s. But now we seem to be making, taking giant steps backwards with the color of someone's skin, what their reproductive organs are, what they look like, not what their content of character is. To me, that to me is the, the worst part of what's going on. It's ridiculous. The questions that are being asked, there's a judge that, that's being um, confirmed, and she's asked whether she had any LBGT, whatever, Q people working in her office, and she answered back, which is perfect. I don't care who's working for me. As long as they're good, I don't ask these questions. It's about if you can do the work. Meritocracy comes, I think that's where we need to get to and not what we look like. What do you think? Well, I, no, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, what really has happened, and I think there's been a little slipping back, too, in terms of race relations, um, because I think we were moving in, in the right direction from the 50s, the 60s on into the 70s and 80s. Uh, things, things were, I would say, significantly improving for a lot of black people who could escape the inner cities. It wasn't improving so much for those who were still stuck in the inner cities, and that was where a lot of people were. were. But there was still more acceptance. of of, A black person could move into a suburban all-white neighborhood and buy a house, that that kind of thing. Uh, And so a lot of progress was made. Uh, We see it in entertainment. We see it on television. You know, there was a time when, of course, you would never see a black person in an advertisement. Mm -hmm. Uh, you would never see a black person being a lead or a hero in a movie. You know, there was always a joke in the old days. If you saw a black person in a movie, he'd be the first one killed. <laughs> <laughs> and that was sort of how Hollywood was in those days. But, you know, we, it, so much has improved. But then along came identity politics, which began to then 
reverse this kind of assimilation process into a coalescing. I, I, I said, you know, uh, this country, uh, 200 years, was pride, proud of being a melting pot where people would come in here, make their contributions culturally, add a little something to the mix of food, style, things like that. Mm -hmm. And they would, over a generation or two, absorb into this singular unifying culture. Now, I say, you know, they want this country to be a bucket of rocks, a white rock, a black rock, a brown rock, a red rock, a yellow rock, never to assimilate, never to become part of a culture. And that's where we get the term tribalism. We become identity politics tribes. And we can do it not just on race. We can do it on gender. We can Mm -hmm. do it on sexual preference. We can do it on religion. We can do it on anything. Mm -hmm. But we, we, we coalesce into these, you know, subcultures. And so I think that's that's sad, and I, I think we we really have had are missing a great opportunity because my contention, and I've written about this, is the American people are great. The vast majority of American people have no problem whatsoever with racial tolerance or anything whatsoever. It's the political structure and the media that grinds into kind of prod us into being in these separate camps. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we, we laugh about it. You know, I, I, I raised a black daughter, okay. My my brother, uh, his uh, grandchildren, um, he has two black grandchildren uh, from two different, two, uh, two, two I mean, great-grandchildren. So two of his grandchildren married a black person. And you know, we're 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 kind of the old, you know, Northwest Side Chicago neighborhood family, and yet, if that's happening in our family with the love and the caring and the, you know, that's that's where it's going to happen, because nobody in our family cares about that in a negative way. We we welcome everybody into the family. And that, and, and I know more families like that than I know people who are racially biased, whether they're black or white. You know, there's all saying that you know black people can't be racist, and and I'm a common sense guy. If you hate somebody because of their ethnicity, you're a racist. If you're a black person who hates white people, you're a racist. Mm-hmm. If you're an Asian that hates uh, Hispanics, you're a racist. Exactly. <laughs> We should. We we don't have to decide. Uh, that's what bothers me about a lot of this liberal thinking. They they create these you know uh, violations of common sense. You know, uh, they live in a world of, of the, uh, theoretics. Well, we're, you know, I, I I blame Jesse Jackson, and I've known him for years. Um, you know, he he decided that everyone who was black in America had to be African American. So, so all of a sudden, all kinds of people who have had no connection with Africa for two to four hundred years are suddenly going out and getting their hair done and buying dashikis and doing all this other stuff. But and then saying, "Well, this is a culture." Well, it's a created culture. It really kind of slipped things backwards from where it should have been going. So you know, and I think there can be ethnic pride. You yeah, know, there's nothing wrong with that. Can, and, 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 and we should. 
we should celebrate each other's culture. I agree, but uh, celebrating great. each other's culture, that's the difference, right? Not my, my way is the only way and it's the best way. But this is, to right. me, I think they're using race as a way to divide and conquer. But I think the thing that really, the underpinning is economic. It doesn't matter what color you are. If you don't have the economic means, if you're not pulling the levers of power, it's us against them. That's what they don't want anybody to figure out. I mean, they are brilliant, honestly. I think it's starting to fail, frankly. But for the past 10 years or so, they've been brilliant at making people work against their own interest just because of what they look like or where they live or what people think you should think and be because of what you look like. That is the most racist thing ever. I mean, the people who are running the, I guess, the Democratic side of running for president, it's interesting how if you look in their history, there's there's been some use of race in order to get ahead, whether that's saying you're Native American, whether that's claiming that wow. you're um, an African-American or you understand the diaspora. That, to me, is just hypocrisy, to tell you the truth, and disrespectful, well, I, too. I, I, you know, no, I, I think it is. You know, I think, you know, we really need to come down, and I think the American people are largely there. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, I, I always say, and I've read about it in the book, you've got to think about it this way. Billions of times every day, black people, white people, Hispanic, Asians, whoever, we interact billions of times a day mm-hmm. peacefully, happily. We pass each other on the street. We wave at each other. We serve each other in stores and restaurants. We bowl together. We sit on the same sides of the sports uh, stadiums. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work next to each other. We, you know, well, we die in battle together. That happens billions of times every day. So we have to really look at this great mosaic and not just look at the cracked or missing tile or piece or something that's mm-hmm. not working. We have to work on that. There's work to be done, but we shouldn't assume that because there is racism, there is a feeling of racism, that everybody is racist. I think on that I, note, I, I, I let's, we had to take a break. I'm so sorry. Let's take a small break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Are you having problems with persistent bad breath, constant throat clearing, hoarseness, a cough that won't go away? a sore throat, or a feeling that something's always stuck in your throat, why not find out what the problem is so it can be fixed? At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking time to work with our patients as a team to get to the root of the problem. Make an appointment today to see why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. What's up, everybody? Bubba here. It's finally here. The long-awaited Bubba Report, bringing you news from all the trading floors across the globe. We've got Scott Chalady, the cow guy, as seen on CNBC, Fox, and Bloomberg. We've got Keith Bliss, CNBC, Fox, and a floor trader at the New York Stock Exchange. We've got the Badger, who writes the hot topics in the political news. We've got myself putting together my own unique indexes that will help you give you a better idea of what's going on in the market. All you need to do to get a hold of the Bubba Report is go to thebubbashow.org and sign up for the newsletter, or you can email me direct at bubba at thebubbashow.org. 
We want you to have this report because we've got over 150 years of experience talking about markets, getting ready for the trading, and puts you in the best position to have successful. So email me at bub at thebubbish.org to get a copy of your report or go right to the website, thebubbish.org. Make sure you get it. It's a must-have for every investor and trader. The Bubba Report. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Mr. Larry Horst, an economist, someone with a background in economics, public policy, politics, and someone who can speak to, I, I think you're speaking to the best in us, frankly, that we need to start really figuring out what brings us together. And I think there's much more of that, something that underpins everybody, which is human decency and the, the want to pursue what you're putting on this earth for, to love your neighbor, love yourself, love your, your family, and basically contribute to society. These people who are race baiting is what, you, what they're really doing is a means of tearing down society. Do they want anarchy? What do they want? Because they're surely not interested in everybody coming together. And let's revisit that $15 minimum wage. The feeling of those who have versus those who have not. And I remember when I was a kid, if you had the neighbors and they bought something and they had a new house, whatever. You didn't say they took it from you. You basically said, I'm going to work harder so I can get the same thing. Where do we have that disconnect between this? I'm a victim and you took it from me. I don't have to work for it because I, I you know, I'm historically disadvantaged versus I'm going to work doubly hard. I'm going to be better and I'm going to make it work. Where did that happen? Where did that disconnect happen in your opinion? Well, you know, I was thinking back even on my own, you know, upbringing, I always had the feeling when I was growing up that almost everybody in the world had more than we had. <laughs> you know, I would see it on television, I would see it every place, and not so much in my neighbors, but, uh, you know, it seemed like uh, most of the world had more. And, and the fact of the matter is, and I've taught my children this, you know, anytime they feel that they're, you know, not getting what they want out of life or their fair share, uh, it's like being on a ladder. If they want to look up the ladder and see who's got more than them, they should take a look down the ladder and see how many people have a lot less. Mm -hmm. You know, my kids would sometimes say, they'd say, well, you know, life's not fair. And I said, it's not fair, and you should be damn glad it's not fair, because if it was fair, you wouldn't have nearly what you have. So we in this country, we're in the upper 5% of the world. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about, you know, the difference between upper class and middle class and everything, uh, if you spread that all over the world, we're all in the upper quadrant. Even our poor people, poor people in other countries would trade poorness in America with poorness because they have abject poorness. They have poverty, starvation poorness. That's not what we have in this country. I point out in economics that everybody says the middle class, and to some extent we have. But a good chunk of that middle class is now in the upper middle class. We didn't lose the middle class all falling to the bottom. A lot of them went up. Uh, it's a, you know, people would be shocked how many millionaires there are in America. Mm -hmm. and, and the fact is, a lot of them are probably living in the local neighborhoods, in the suburbs. They're living in average things, and they don't have a net worth of a million dollars. So a lot of people have a, you know, a lot of wealth. But... The, but wealth has always been, a, we got it, you know, 
and and authoritarians, and I don't care what you call them, communists, socialists, they're all authoritarians because they want to have the power of a central government to redistribute wealth, to decide who gets what. We're going to take from the rich and we're going to give to the poor. And that never works. Venezuela is a good example, but that's how that's what communism did to China. Millions of people starved to death in China under communism mm-hmm. and under socialism. The same happened to Russia. So what we did is we created a free enterprise system, a free market position, where so many people made the decisions of what got produced, what got sold, and how much it cost. And people actually got to use their individual wealth as power, not surrender it to the government and let the government use their wealth as power. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's so, the difference, isn't you know, it? it? It's who you know, has you know, the power. Is it the government? Do you want to cede that to them? Or do you want to control your own destiny? I think that's yeah. the, the question that people need to ask themselves. And you know what really strikes me? You mentioned the socialist system, the communist. It wasn't equal. I mean, they didn't distribute anything. There were the the bureaucracy or the, what do you call the bourgeoisie, the um, yeah. Politburo, those oh. guys were more equal than everybody else. They got all the stakes. Of they course. got to travel. Everybody else lived like <laughs> dogs. So this is not like it you gets know, distributed, so- is it? The Soviet uh, premier, Brezhnev, uh, back uh, you know in the 1980s, 1970s, mm-hmm. premier Brezhnev, you know what his hobby was? Mm-hmm. Collecting luxury cars. <laughs> there he is heading this communist government. He has like 47 limousines and Mercedes and Maseratis and all kinds of things. And then, you know, uh, I went to uh, Lithuania right after uh, they were independent from the Soviet Union. And the, the troops were still, and the, the Soviet troops were still in the forest, uh, you know, uh, bivouacked in the forest. They couldn't come into the towns in Vilnius, the, the capital. But uh, they had won their independence from the Soviet Union. And when we were there as guests, they took us to the Dakas, where all the communist leaders had all these luxuries, all these resorts and everything. That they had big homes, they had uh, spas, they had, you know, what you would call a nice fancy country club. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, there, there was there was no such thing as, uh, uh, you know, true uh, equality in those systems, and and there never can be. Uh, we're always going to have a system where, by hard work, by achievement, by intellect, and by luck, some people are going to have more than others, and. That's just part of life. It has been that way ever since mankind has been counting pebbles. You know, somebody's going to have more pebbles than the other person. Well, this is how I, so, you know, let me stop you for a second. But you made a comment back that just jogged my memory here or made me think of a different way to think about this. If the inner cities and the liberal mindset of these planned economies, planned everything, you put these children in substandard schools and you lock them in, are you not, you know, Basically, planning out their lives to be in the lower, they're not going to be able to oh, get out that, of this that's rut. That's the intent. Okay. No, that's the intent. I, 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 I've said many times, this is not an accident. The intention of the system is to keep a mass of black voters in a concentrated area and to try to keep it uneducated because educated people won't put up with it. Mm-hmm. They don't have to put up with it. So they're they're trapped in generational welfare poverty, 
and 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 you you see, I mean, you know, we read about it and we we talk about you know the horrors of life in the inner city, but until you're there, until you're there at night, until you're in a neighborhood, you know, like I would be going to speak at a church, and it would not be uncommon for me to hear gunshots outside the church. So you, you so you know, growing up. My neighbors couldn't even fathom living in an environment like that. They wouldn't. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't allow it. And their leaders wouldn't allow it. Our, our aldermen wouldn't allow it. You know, I, I, I'm very critical of, you know, so many of the black leaders. Uh, you know, in neighborhoods that are just, you know, dreadful in Chicago, you, you would wind up with, a, you know, you've got a black alderman, a black state representative, a black state senator, a black congressman. For 20, 30, 40 years, they've gotten rich. They've got nice cars. But the neighborhood hasn't changed much. And yet they still have a following, you know, because they've convinced the people. You know, I, I had a, uh, a precinct captain. I asked him one time, I said, why, why is it that, you know, all the people in my neighborhood, all the white people, vote for Mayor Daley, the first one? And all the people in the black neighborhood vote for Mayor Daley, and we're supposed to not be getting along. I mean, it's supposed to be two different agendas. And he, he put it very simply. He, he said, Larry, he said, very simple. He said, I won't use the N-word, but he did. But he said, uh, you know, I walk around this neighborhood, and I explain to everybody how Mayor Daley is keeping those folks uh, south of Division Street, because without him, they'd be moving into your neighborhood. He said, well, there's a guy like me who's black, and he's going on the other side of Division Street saying, you know what, if you don't vote for Mayor Daley, you're not going to have this public housing. You're not going to get this welfare. Mm-hmm. He said, that's how it's done. And, you know, I was I was a high school kid. And I thought, what an enormous political science lesson on how the machine operates. And to this day, it hasn't really changed much because it's still working. Well, I wonder, is this... Is it still working, or are they trying to get some insurance with the immigration issue? You know, we're having a debate, I guess, at this point in our country where people coming into the country who are coming into the inner cities becoming, you know, uh, I guess, competition for jobs, for well, getting up. Well, you know, that's an interesting you – know, that's, that's an interesting concept because actually – uh, the, several things are true economically. We need more people in this country because we're at almost zero. Economists consider us at almost no unemployment. This is as low as it can possibly go. So in the 3.5 range, 3.5, that's it. Uh, so we need workers coming into this country to grow the economy. That's a fact. The second fact is that any person who comes into this economy and takes a job, also produces a job. Every person in a healthy economy, to an extent, is a producer and a consumer. As a, as a producer, they're working and they're getting money. They use that money to be a consumer, which puts somebody else to work. And, and the way to understand it is, in 1860, there were 30 million people in America. Today, there's 330 million people. Where did all the other jobs come from? Well, actually, let every me, person. Well, I every don't person know. who got a job creates a job. I have now, a question mark if about that. Somebody comes though. in. 
let me let me stop before let me stop before hot yeah exactly what if they come in and they're not working and they're just getting Ah. on the system that's not the same thing no that's a drag on the system because now they're a consumer but not a producer exactly you got to be a producer and a consumer so we shouldn't worry too much about people coming into this country um who get a job even it's true even someone who's here illegally who has a job will create a job we don't want the system to operate illegally because it doesn't make any sense to do it that way. But it's not a matter of race. You know, the the, the, the Democrats would like to say, mm-hmm. oh, they don't want them here because they're Hispanic mm-hmm. or they're Mexican. They don't want them here. No, that's, that's not it at all. What we don't want here is we don't want people who come here simply <clears throat> to access the welfare system because that's a drag. Right now, I think it's, uh, I forgot how many, what the percentage, but the productive American percentage is at the, one of the lowest points in American history, meaning that the producers are producing a lot more for the, those who are not producing, those who are simply consuming. Mm-hmm. You know, we always have consumers. Our children are consumers. <clears throat> Dad goes to work. Mom goes to work. They produce and they share their production with a child who can't be a consumer. Uh, handicapped people may not be able to be consumers. People temporarily out of unemployed Uh, are consumers without being producers. Mm -hmm. So there's always a level of that. But when you start to have over half of your population not producing, uh, the economy starts to tilt. I mean, it's... it can't uh, operate successfully on that basis. Well, let's take let's stop there and take our last break because I, when I come back, I want to ask you about this, you know, this uh, income, livable income, whatever they're trying to do, where they just mm-hmm. give people money. So, on that note, let's take a small break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. You're listening to Medicine on Call, the place where healthcare, business, and current events connect. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Mr. Larry Horst. And before the break, we're talking about how the economy really works and people who come in and, and have jobs and pay taxes and produce versus those who are not able to for whatever reason, either they're children, they're disabled, or they're coming in and immediately getting from out of the country and immediately taking social services. Now, those states like California who pride themselves in offering freebies for everybody who can show up, I can't imagine that's a very healthy system. And looking at what's going on with typhus and all sorts of medical problems based on poor hygiene, because you have so many people who are homeless and it's just a disaster. Is that the future of the country if we don't stop this process or have control of it? Well, it's the future of California. They're going to get what they deserve. Uh, you know, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that if California continues its policies. As a matter of fact, the, the, the greatest model we have of this is Detroit. Detroit started doing this 40, 50 years ago, and it completely destroyed the city. You just can't do it. So. The economy has a way of punishing those who think they can manipulate the economy for political reasons. And, well, uh, Chicago my is, is virtually on the, on the edge of bankruptcy right now because of it, because they thought they could just do all this welfare, they could do all these pension plans, mm-hmm. they could do all that. And now, now they're going bust. The whole state is going broke. California's there. 
And what's happening, people leave those states because they have to keep increasing taxes to mm-hmm. pay for all this nuttiness. And then who leaves? The taxpayers leave. The businesses making, uh, you know, to pay taxes and hire people leave. And all you have to do is trace Detroit from about 1960 to today, and you can see where California is going to go, where Illinois is going to go, and a lot of other states who follow that kind of uh, redistribution of wealth and uh, socialistic uh, policies. So are you saying then that this mindset of night, they just keep raising the tax rate. It seems going to be 100% on the super, super rich. <laughs> I know how it's going to yeah. work. But as soon as that hit, we can see in New York what that would reap, you know, what that would reap if once they sow that. The rich are leaving New York. They don't even have a good tax base anymore. Oh. And what, Absolutely. I mean, this just makes no sense. It's yep. just class, fermenting class hatred. But as the rich go, so does everybody else. Because as soon as they're gone, they're coming for us next, are they not? Well, it's a matter of, you know, people will have to relocate where they have better policies and things like that. And that's why there's so much relocation. Illinois is an exodus state. Uh, California is an exodus state. New York. Even Hawaii is an exodus. Can you imagine yeah. Hawaii is an exodus state? Yeah, I can actually. Are leaving Hawaii because of their taxes and their policies. But, you know, we were talking even of just one little thing, is, is, is the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. The minimum wage is probably one of the biggest political shams ever put on the public. Uh, it sounds perfect. We raise the minimum wage. Everybody will then have a livable wage or something. Uh, well, no, they're not going to have it. Because what happens when you raise the minimum wage is you create unemployment. So... It may look good for a couple people at Burger King who are now going to get another dollar or two an hour, but how about the three people who are now not going to get a job? And the minimum wage is a short-lived benefit for an infinitesimally small number of people. Mm. You know, there, there's only like 1% of people who even work at minimum wage, much less, you know, and most of those don't need a living wage because they're interns, they're students, they're, you know, it's, that's the kind of the bottom of the economy where, mm-hmm. you, where you have these part-time workers. Now, let's say somebody has a full-time job in McDonald's, they get a couple dollars extra. The next thing that happens is they don't get the raise in six months or a year. It'll eventually level out because the business will not raise the salaries like they would have otherwise. So when you force a raise, you, you cancel a raise. The other thing that happens is they may actually lay off people. People may lose their jobs because of it. Or people are going to have to do more work. <clears throat> and if, the, if it becomes too disproportionate, then robotics take over, automation takes over, because that becomes economically viable. So I use the example of the uh, automobile industry. 1960s, 70s, uh, they bragged about how they were the highest paid workers in America, in the world, some of the best paid workers, and they were paid way over their market value. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens eventually is the owners of the enterprises, whose job it is to keep down costs, they say, well, now it's costing us so much for those 5,000 people, it's worthwhile getting a few of these robots. So now, and I've been in old auto factories, I've been in new ones. You would see hundreds and hundreds of people in an old automobile factory, and the last one I went in, honestly, God, I thought it was closed. I didn't even <laughs> know they were in operation because they have these pods where they start assembling pieces of the car, putting it together, and then it goes by conveyor, hanging conveyor belt to the next pod. There's like one or two people. And these cars are being produced by much fewer people than ever. So you really have to let the market determine what the salaries should be, what the pay scale should be, because if you don't, then you create shortages, you create all kinds of problems. 
And so we, we tried it. We, we, tried, we tried price controls, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it, it creates shortages. So, you know, if, if you want to, I remember they would talk all about the Soviet Union. Everybody was equal, but they had bread lines. People couldn't even buy bread. And then when things really go bad, you have Venezuela where the money's valueless. The, the inflation is so high that uh, you would have to take a, a wheelbarrow full mm-hmm. of money to buy a loaf of bread. So, you you know, know, you get this hyperinflation going, and in some cases, they were actually, banks were changing the denomination of the currency with magic markers. So they're, they're adding zeros to the currency because the currency was inflating so fast. Now, is another way to distract people from this reality? I mean, you're putting forth policies that are doomed to fail. How do you distract, you know, how do you... Ca- cloak that except for making people well, hate each other and they don't pay attention to this well I, you know it, it's partly because uh, promising everything to everybody that they want uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, said uh, you know he said the minute the citizens learn that they can vote themselves the riches of the treasury the republic's going to be over mm-hmm. it'll, it'll be doomed uh, is it, once we decide that we can redistribute wealth, that we can get more. I, I'm, I point, I'm sort of critical of the world's greatest generation. You know, they're praised a lot. And I, I keep pointing out, I said, yeah, but, you know, they have utilized more financial and uh, physical resources, natural resources, than any generation in the world. And the problem was they couldn't afford it, so they just borrowed the money from their grandchildren. And to me, that's taxation without representation. What's more <laughs> lack of representation than taxing somebody for what you're buying whose two generations isn't even born yet? So my grandchildren are going to be paying for all of these entitlement programs that are misnamed. They're not entitled. We're not entitled to those things. Mm-hmm. They can be good. We can do good things in a society, but we're not entitled to them. And once we got decided that we were entitled to all of this stuff, that's when, you know, everything's gone off the tracks. <laughs> well, I think we all need to ha- take a step back. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, Atlas Shrugged. It's about produce, producing something. Find out what it is that you're put on this earth to do, and you should be able to, to do that and to make a living at it. And if someone finds value in it, then you should get paid more for it. But somebody, some central planning, collectivist mindset of somebody gets to decide what your worth is, what you should do in terms of production in society, and then how much you should get paid is not the way to do it. You're going to have a ton of people opting out of the system and basically not being, I guess, not being producers, well, and it's not going to work. It can't. You, people ask, you know, why, why do we have people promoting those kind of policies if they're so obviously not going to work? And, and I always say it's, it's like the snake oil salesman. You want to make a buck and get out of town before they discover that <laughs> they just bought us something really bad. <laughs> well, it's so about power. It, uh, that's right. But, you know, I think a guy like the Speaker of the House in Illinois, a guy named Madigan. Madigan has been the architect of the destruction of Illinois with all of this stuff. Madigan will soon retire. He'll probably go down to the islands with millions of dollars. <laughs> 
and he will never be held accountable for what's going to happen to all those poor people in Chicago who are going to go the way of Detroit because he's going to be the snake oil salesman and selling it for generations, and he's going to get out of town before the people figure out that they've been poisoned. Well, what's our, you know, we have about a minute left. What's in a short form? How, first of all, what would you be, what would be your answer to trying to get people out of this mindset? Is there something that we can do? I think you have to uh, learn the truth. I mean, you, you have to really listen to people who are telling you the truth and not listen to people who are telling you what you like to hear. Good point. You know, it, it, it doesn't, you know, if, if your neighbor tells you that, uh, you know, that growth on your head is not cancer, but the doctor says it is, who are you going to listen to? If you listen to your neighbor who doesn't know is not telling you the truth, it's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And it's the same way. We have to listen to people. And, and, and a lot of it is common sense. You know, so many times that I speak, people say, I never thought of that. I never realized that. Because a lot of what I talk about is just common sense. People know that you can't keep borrowing at the national level. And they say, well, how did we get fooled by all this? Well, you get fooled because too many people, when they say, oh, we're going to give you everything you ever wanted, you know, and people tend to say, well, well, I guess if they say they can give it to me, okay, that's fine, I'll take it. <laughs> okay, well, I got a bridge for you somewhere. <laughs> How can in the short minute we have? How can people reach you? How can they buy your book? Well, the book's not out yet. The book is uh, race relations from the the inception of uh, slavery on the continent here all the way through to the uh, current events of today, the the most recent uh, racial incidents and all that kind of stuff. And it's actually going to be a series of uh, three or four books broken down into an era of slavery, an era of segregation, an era of hypocrisy, and then the, the current era of urban unrest. Cool. And so it's really, it's gotten to be, uh, it was supposed to be a book, but then after I got up to over a thousand pages. <laughs> <laughs> it needs to be a course is what it needs to be. Oh. Well, it should be. I'd love to teach that course. Well, I, I'm online and I write regularly for punchingbagpost.com punchingbagpost.com and uh, I'm the featured writer on, on that blog and other than that people send me emails I'm at lph at thomasandjoyce.com and that's a man's name A-N-D a woman's name dot com so it's lph at thomasandjoyce.com is my email I'm on Facebook Larry Horace is on Facebook and uh that's about it. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on. When your book comes out, I want to have you back on because race is, you know, I don't particularly think it's the most important thing in the world. I think being a human being is. But the way it's being weaponized, it's important for people to understand yep. how they can be manipulated, how their emotions are being well, played, and how they can avoid falling into the trap. I quote Whitney Young a lot. Uh, he said many years ago that we don't need coalitions of white against blacks. He said we need coalitions of good people against bad people. On that note, we and have... And I think that's what we have. I think that's what we have. I've got a lot of black friends on Facebook, and they're Democrats. They may be liberal or whatever, but they're good people. We get along. I think 99% of us actually do, and we need to just remember, stop letting people tell us what to think. On that note, we really have to go. I really thank okay. you for coming on. I hope to have you back well, on in the future. You. Thank you for listening to Medicine on Call. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM.